Have you ever had a situation in your life where you felt like you were actually going to die and you came away relatively unscathed? Obviously, if you're here, you came away relatively unscathed. But have you ever had that situation where you felt like it was certain you were going to die? A man named Nicholas Alchemade certainly would be nodding his head right now if he were here in our midst. In December 1944, he was sitting in the back of a British bomber plane fulfilling his role in, uh, in that plane near the end of World War II, just a few months or so before it finished. But German defenses shot the plane and actually killed the pilot. So the plane started going out of control and actually the plane caught on fire in many different parts. And so Nicholas Alchemade realized that he needed to get out as fast as he could, so he turned around to open a hatch to get his parachute out because of where he sat in the plane. He wasn't able to wear his parachute at all times. And when he opened the hatch, flames erupted out of it, and he was burned badly, so he decided, okay, I have no parachute. I'm just going for it. And so he jumped and fell at 120 miles an hour for three miles through the air. He passed out along the way at some point, but uh, before he did, he realized, going to die. And this is the time, and the main sorrow he had was he wasn't going to be able to go home and, and walk through his homeland in pride once more. But then he woke up a few hours later, and he was shocked to find himself not in eternity, but under pine trees in a snowbank in Germany. The pine trees were tall enough and thick enough that the snow that had fallen underneath them had not melted. If he had fallen 20 yards in another direction, there were no trees there and there was no snow there. But the pine trees had broken his fall and he had landed in a sitting position without his boots, randomly enough, in the middle of a snowbank. He had burns from the last few seconds in the plane and a few minor cuts from the pine trees, but no broken bones. What would you be thinking if that had been you? What would you do once you got home? Uh, Some might say, I'd go buy a lottery ticket. (laughs) Like, this is my lucky day. Got to do something about this here. Uh, Others might say, they'd go kiss their spouse and tell her you love her or him you love him. Hug your kids. How would you describe what happened to you? How would you tell people, this is my interpretation of what just happened? If you weren't a Christian or you're, you, know, you looked at life through an entirely secular lens, you'd probably say something like, I was super lucky, or the fates aligned just right. But if you were a Christian, or at least someone who was raised in a place where Christian vocabulary was kind of thrown out popularly, maybe you would say, I was blessed. And I have good news for you today. You don't need to fall three miles out of an airplane to know that you are blessed by God. And you don't need to win the lottery to know you're blessed. You don't even need to live in America to be blessed. You don't need material goods to know you're blessed. All you need to do is open to Psalm 127 and 128 to know that you are blessed by God. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, those two Psalms are on page 485. We're going through the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms that God's people sang to each other and with each other as they went to Jerusalem to fulfill Passover feasts or other types of feasts that that God had commanded his people 
particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, to fulfill each year. The concept of being blessed is a popular one in our society, particularly if you peruse the merchandise at Hobby Lobby or in the gift shop at Cracker Barrel or you listen to a lot of country music. There are a lot of songs about being blessed. Some even say they're hashtag too, be, too blessed to be stressed. Or, um, again, like I said, I think there's like a, a good solid number of songs. If you're a country music fan, just type in the word blessed and you'll... You'll be blessed through those songs, I'm quite sure. But um, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe that language annoys you because it sounds like it's just religious talk for being lucky or whatever. And I would say I'm annoyed by that language a lot of times the way it's used as well. Uh, but people think they're blessed for all kinds of reasons. The company grew. The truck's still running. The Packers lost last week. Hashtag blessed. Uh, there's still food in the pantry. The kids are still alive. There's clothes on the back. There's customers in the aisles. And so on. So if you talk to some people, it seems like blessings abound in their lives. In our passage today, the word bless or blessed, some form of that, appears five times. And the concept shows up in several other ways, just using slightly different language. Which is why I think the emphasis of this passage is on enjoying the blessings of the Lord. But maybe what the Bible teaches us about the blessings of God is not exactly what you would learn at Cracker Barrel or Hobby Lobby. Maybe it's slightly different. Maybe it's, there are some tweaks we can make to our understanding of God's blessing. So I'm going to read both Psalms 127 and 128 aloud at one time. And in the remainder of our time together, we'll see that these Psalms invite you to enjoy the blessings of the Lord, even though you won't see them all in this life. Enjoy the blessings of the Lord, even though you won't see them all in this life. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. A Song of Ascents Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. May peace be upon Israel. There's a lot here that could capture our attention. But the message of these psalms and the goal of this sermon is that you would enjoy God's blessings even though you won't see them all in this life. In the Old Testament, God's blessings were intended for people in Israel who walked in God's ways and for people in other countries who humbled themselves before God and recognized the foolishness 
and the wickedness of idol worship and turn to the one living God, Yahweh, and turn to him for mercy. This side of the cross, our blessings as Christians are all channeled through Jesus Christ who died to redeem sinners and then rose again. And everyone who turns from their sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ is blessed in the heavenly places, as we read in Ephesians, or as Teresa read for us in Ephesians 1 earlier. We'll be given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And those blessings we already enjoy if you are in Christ. And the fullest, the richest demonstration of them will be in eternity. Each of these psalms teaches a distinctive truth about God's blessings. In Psalm 127, we see that the Lord is the one who blesses your efforts. The Lord is the one who blesses your efforts. Maybe you notice the threefold repetition of the, the phrase, in vain. There are ways you can waste your time. You can waste your time trying to build a house if God isn't behind that project. You can waste your time uh, watching over the city if God isn't going to protect that city. And you can waste your time getting up early and going to bed late trying to be extra productive if God isn't behind your efforts. But Psalm 127 says that the Lord is the one who blesses your efforts. He works on your behalf. Now perhaps you notice, and I read the superscription, I think is the term maybe you've heard before, about these psalms. I read the ones of these two psalms, unlike I've done other weeks as far as I remember, Because I want you to notice in Psalm 127, the superscription, it says a song of ascents or a psalm of ascents of Solomon. What that probably means is that Solomon wrote it or it was written in Solomon's time, kind of in honor of Solomon. And why would that be important? Because again, I want you to kind of frame this psalm, not just in 21st century Chicago, but in, let's say, 900 BC, Jerusalem. How would this psalm have meant anything? What would it have meant to the people who heard it first that it was initially inspired for and written for? Unless the Lord builds the house, where else in the Old Testament do you hear about God building a house? It would particularly be from 2 Samuel 7 and David's like, oh, I have a great idea. I'm going to build God a house. He needs this. And God's like, you know, actually I don't. I can live wherever I want. I don't need a particular place to dwell. So how about I build you a house instead? But there were two different meanings to the term house there. David had in mind a physical building. God had a family lineage, a dynasty. And so I think that's what we need to have in mind here. And God said, instead of you building the house, your son's going to build the physical place. I'm going to build you a family lineage. And Jesus Christ himself then comes from the family of David. And so in a sense, we are all children of David together because of our faith in the true son of David, who was also, as we often sing, remarkably David's Lord. He was David's son and David's Lord. So unless the Lord builds the house, I think by that we should understand, yes, the temple, but also the spiritual temple. And that makes us start thinking through how does the whole Bible talk about temple? I realize we've talked about this several times before, but sometimes we have people who haven't heard us talk about this or who forgot that we talked about this. But essentially what we would see is that as the Bible trans, uh, transpires, as the storyline of the Bible transpires, you go from the Garden of Eden being the temple of God, the place where God dwells with his people, to being God's desire for the whole earth to be his, which, you know, the Garden of Eden is essentially a small microcosm, a picture of what the whole earth was going to be like. 
And God says, I want the whole earth to be filled with my glory as the temple was. But before you get there, God dwells with his people through the tabernacle and then through this temple that Solomon builds, referred to here in Psalm 127. But then Jesus himself is the true temple we read in John 2. And then the church becomes the temple of God, where God dwells. And we also know that God dwells in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit when we are made alive by him. And that one day we won't need the temple because we will be dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth, which itself is what Eden and the garden was looking forward to the whole time. And so I think what we have in mind here is that you have both the physical and the spiritual aspect of this house. Unless the Lord builds that temple that Solomon was trying to build, those workers can go to town all day long trying to get the best resources and do the finest craftsmanship on that temple. But if the Lord's not behind it, it's going to be in vain. Why would the physical temple be important to the people coming out of exile if this was written then? Because the temple had been knocked down. It had been burned down. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians And what were these people supposed to do after Cyrus let God's people go out of Babylon back into Israel? Supposed to rebuild the walls, for one thing, so they have a safe place to live. They're also supposed to rebuild the temple. As a reminder, this is where we come to worship God. And so, perhaps for God's people singing this and affirming this truth together on the way out of exile, they realized, oh, Yeah, we need God's grace. We need God's strength because the enemies are great. And you can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly Nehemiah for the rebuilding of the temple. And so if the Lord's not behind this, what we do is totally in vain. It doesn't matter if we have the best guards sitting up in the watchtowers trying to keep us safe. Other armies could come and shoot them down, could burn the walls down and so forth. And so there's an interesting dynamic here in this passage. You think about the fact that we are the ones who exercise with the creative abilities that God has given us. We exercise those in actually building buildings and in creating companies and in building families and churches and so forth. But if the Lord isn't behind it, our efforts are going to be in vain. And so... In this, we see the necessity of human responsibility, taking our responsibility seriously. So that means you do your job super well at work because you have a responsibility. You don't just not show up and be like, well, it's got to be the God anyway. You know, God's got this. And just leave it in somebody else's lap to clean up the mess. The Lord uses you. He uses your part, your human responsibility in ways that you may not even be aware of. So let me just be super specific to this moment. Who you chose to sit next to or down the row from in this room today could really make someone's day. If someone walked in here and was lonely and felt like, I don't even know why I come to this church anymore because no one even talks to me here or no one even sits with me and you chose to sit with them, you just told them, oh, maybe I am valuable because I'm made in the image of God. Maybe I actually am loved. So in that way, the Lord is encouraging somebody else through you by you making a choice about where you're going to sit. And you can read more about this in a little book we often have on the table. I don't know if there's a copy of it right now, but it's called How to Walk in the Church. You might think that sounds like something you'd give like a kindergartner who's never been to church before. It's actually for us to think about who am I going to sit next to What am I going to say to people before the service? How am I going to participate, like sing loudly and affirm the creed and read scripture and so forth during the service? How am I going to listen to the sermon? And then what am I going to talk about with somebody after the service? And then after the service is over, 
where am I going to go to lunch with somebody from the church that I've never talked to before because I want to get to know them and be a means of God's grace in their lives? That's the human responsibility aspect of the Lord building the house, which in this case is the church. And so the Lord uses our, respons- our human responsibility, but ultimately he's behind all of it. And so we as God's people, as Christians here at Brandard, need to ask the Lord to do things that only he can do. What would some of those things be? What crosses your mind? What do we need to ask God to do because only he can do it? Uh, one example would be bring conversions. Like, we can't make anybody alive spiritually. We can put flames under their feet and say, like, you really need to put faith in Jesus, and we still can't do it. It's a spiritual work by the Holy Spirit, and so we ask him to do that work that only he can do. We ask him to revive hearts, to guard families from the evils of this world, to grow our church, to keep your kids safe. You realize you can't keep your kids safe? Like, you could keep them in your house the rest of your life, and they're still not safe. We ask God to provide. We ask God to watch over us, to make us hard workers and alert watchmen, to use the language of this uh, first verse here. But if the Lord is the one who builds the temple, he is also the one who builds the church. And he said so himself in Matthew 16. Very likely Jesus using language related to this Psalm 127. And so what are we supposed to do? Just kick back and I don't need to prep any more sermons. You don't need to pray or show up or give or disciple or evangelize. No, we do all of those things. It is our job as Christians to do the work of God while realizing the whole time at every moment that God is the one who builds his kingdom. We aren't kingdom builders. We are the beneficiaries of the fact that God's kingdom is spreading and is growing. Like that parable that Jesus said, it starts with a mustard seed and it looks super small and insignificant. Maybe like you often feel like our church might be. Like, we're just a little speck. I mean, you look at some of these churches around here that have a thousand people in them right now. What are we doing wrong that doesn't have a thousand people in here? Well, we don't have seats for that number of people. But even if we did, we still have 50 people instead of a thousand. What's different? That's a different conversation, a different sermon. But I will say, your job as a Christian is to do things like show up. Thank you. You, already, you can check that box. Give. I know many of you give super faithfully. Evangelize. Disciple. Fellowship with one another. That means maybe like coming to the fellowship meal in three weeks. Or going out to lunch with somebody at Chipotle after this service. Or serving people in particular ways. We had a number of men serving our church yesterday by getting up in our attic. Not a super glamorous job, but it needed to be done to save us thousands of dollars down the road. Uh, Invite people. Follow up with people who used to be here and aren't here anymore. Like, where did they go? Find out. Text them. Call them. Go by their house. Bring them a pie. And forgive people. This is part of living in a church together. When somebody sins against you or you feel slighted by them or offended by them, whether they meant to offend you or not, most of the time, probably not, I hope, that you forgive them and you move toward them. Verse 2 says, It's in vain you get up early and go to late rest. Or go to, go, yeah, go late to rest. For some of us, that sounds great. Like, I can just stay up as late as I want and play games or watch games or whatever, and I can then get up whatever time I want. It doesn't matter. I think what we have in mind here is somebody who feels like their entire destiny is in their hands. So they have to control every moment from 4 a.m. to 12 a.m. all the way through 
that period of time. And maybe I'll give myself four hours, but that's all I can afford because my job is so important. My family needs this extra support. And we could go on and on about the reasons you might come to that conclusion. You need to do that. But when you go to bed, you're actually sending a message to yourself, to your family, and to the Lord himself. You're saying, I am inadequate. I am only human. I can't keep my own heart beating and my own lungs pumping air. I can't do any of this for myself. God's in control of it. So I'm going to go to bed and rest in his promises to me. And you're acknowledging your insufficiency when you do that. You're acknowledging your inadequacy and your humanity. But in doing so, you're revealing that you understand the grace of God is greater than anything you can accomplish yourself. And so if you get good sleep, I want to say, praise God and give him thanks for that. If you don't get good sleep, perhaps you can see your doctor. Perhaps you can pray. Perhaps when you're awake in the middle of the night, you can pray for our congregation. I had a pastor in my probably high school years who when he struggled with insomnia, which he frequently did, he would go to the church building and he would walk through the aisles praying for every single person in that church by name, just over and over again. That's the kind of pastor you want to have. That's the kind of pastor who loves God, but that, that's not just a pastor job like where you only have to do that or should do that or are encouraged to do that if it's your job to take care of people spiritually. You can do that for each other. Walk through your house. Wash your dishes and pray for a different person uh, each, each um, time you do that. There was a, a guy I read about this past week who once set the record in high school. I want to say this was in the 1960s. I think in San Diego. Set the record for the most hours awake in a row. And it was ridiculous. It was five days or something like that without any sleep. And he, you know, set the world record and successfully completed this high school project he was overseeing. And successfully threw off his sleep pattern for the rest of his life. He struggled with terrible insomnia for the rest of his life because he messed it up so badly. I just want to encourage you to give thanks for good sleep and realize it is a good gift from God and not ruin your life in foolish ways such as that man did. I will say as well, did you notice, uh, before we move on to verse 3, did you notice the last line of verse 2, who God gives sleep to? It's a pretty beautiful term, particularly after we read Ephesians uh, chapter 1. He gives to his beloved sleep. Has it ever occurred to you that you are beloved by God? That he would actually call you beloved? Who is that referring to? Every person? No. It's referring to every person who has put their faith in Christ. In this case, every person who is faithfully walking in his ways in Israel. Now, as you looked at verses 1 and 2, and you see the repetition of vanity or being something being in vain, and then you come to verse 3, it almost feels like a high school or like a freshman English paper where the person had a certain number of words to fill and he said everything he was supposed to say and he still had like a thousand more words to go so he just started writing words because it seems like it has no connection to what came before it. So you have this in vain, in vain, in vain. Children, let's talk about children now. So what's the connection? This is one of the hardest parts about this particular passage for me to wrestle through is Okay, so what's the connection between all these things being in vain and God doing these works, like giving people sleep, giving people uh, progress in their work, and so forth, and children? And there are a couple different connections, but I think it became a little more obvious as the week went on. 
And it goes back to verse 1, this idea of the Lord building the house. And so I think what Solomon is doing, assuming he's the author here or the person who was sitting next to Solomon writing this about Solomon, whatever, is realizing there's a physical component to Solomon's family because Solomon's David's son. God made the promise to David that you're going to have lots of kids. Well, that happens by your kids having kids and their kids having kids and their kids having kids. So people having babies, also known as children, there's that component and there's also the component of building the actual structure of the temple. So I think what the psalm doing, is doing here is now moving in that direction of God's the one who blesses your efforts in watching over you even while you're doing things like sleeping and working and watching over the city, doing your job. But he's also the one who gives you children. He's also the one who fulfills that aspect of the house idea, building this dynasty as opposed to building a building. I think that's what's happening here. He's building the family as opposed to the structure. And so these last three verses talk about the gift of children that God gives. Children are a heritage. Maybe the word we would use in our context more regularly is children are an inheritance. Something that you have that lasts longer than you that then gets passed on to bless other people. Off the top of my head, definition of inheritance. But that's what children are designed to do. And he says with uh, parallelism, we call it poetic parallelism, He's saying the same thing a different way. The fruit of the womb, that's the children, are a reward, or again, an inheritance. They're like arrows or weapons, we could say. And they they fulfill a particular responsibility in the Lord's mission in the world. And so it's wonderful, verse 5 says, to have lots of children. The man who fills his quiver, which is something you hold arrows in, that kind of person is blessed by God. And so I think just a simple way to look at this passage is if you are not married and you are interested in getting married, I would encourage you to pray about that and take steps in that direction. And then have children if you can. And whether you can have children or not, I encourage you to consider adopting or fostering or other kinds of ministry to children. Praise the Lord for your children and grandchildren, especially if they walk with God. Praise him for that. He did that. There's no like super parent buttons that you push that makes your children come out just right in the end. It's a work of God when they walk with him. I would encourage you as well when we think about the fact that children are a gift from God to pray for the children in our congregation. It's actually kind of convenient at this stage in our church, and we hope this is different three months from now and six months from now and a year from now, there actually aren't that many children for you to have to pray through. So you could pray through one a day, Pray for Thomas on Monday and Grant on Tuesday, and then Gwen's the next oldest, so pray for her on Wednesday. And go down the list. You have the, the Seidel's children over here. I mean, we could, so we got like nine children between three families. If you want to go up into high school, you can include Austin in that. If you want to go into college age, you can keep going. I'm just saying we can't all be children. But you can pray for each other's children, even if you don't have children. And you can pray for God to prosper them and to give their parents wisdom in shepherding them and so forth. We also want to acknowledge briefly that while children are a gift from the Lord, he doesn't give that gift to every person. And so walk with compassion toward those who would love to have children and don't have them. Verse 4 talks about this idea of children being like arrows or weapons for effective living and ministry. And so if you would like to think more about how to help people raise their children or how you can raise your own children With good resources, let me know, and I can point you in a lot of different directions that way about children and 
uh, how to minister to them, good books written to their level, and so forth. If you have guilt, if you're here and you're like, yeah, children are a gift from God, and I did a terrible job raising them. I hope that's not the mentality, mentality that you have. If it is, I would urge you to throw that to the Lord and realize there are a lot of great kids who came out of terrible homes, and vice versa. Again, there's no secret code that if you knew it and you punched it in, your kids are going to turn out just right. Conversion is a gift from God. So if you are the pastor of a beautiful, healthy church and your kids aren't saved, it's not because you forgot to pray with your kids or you forgot to pray for them or you forgot to teach them the Bible. It's because for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit hasn't made them alive. But you can pray for that. You can pray for that for other people's children as well. As you think about this idea that children are blessed by God, the person who has many children is blessed by God. I uh, thought of an article by Kevin DeYoung that I'll read just a couple paragraphs from. This is an article called The Case for Kids, if you want to Google it later and read the very long article, but I'll read you about three paragraphs, partly because it's interesting and partly because I think it hits the theme of this passage well. Having children is not for the faint of heart. Kids are expensive. They are messy and exhausting. They take your time and can break your heart. They probably will never love you as much as you love them. Let's not be romantic about it. Children are a burden. But they are also one of the greatest earthly blessings. Kevin Young is like 10 kids himself, so that's the context in which he's writing this. They're also one of the greatest earthly blessings. Have we turned Rachel's cry of desperation on its head, asking God to keep children from us lest we die to ourselves? The promise to Abraham of progeny was not his curse, and neither is it ours. A man like a warrior with arrows in his hand, a wife like a fruitful vine, which we'll see in the next psalm, and children like olive shoots around the table. These are the Lord's blessings from Zion. Throughout America and around the world, we see that faith and family stand and fall together. Conservative, devoutly religious persons have more children than their liberal and secular counterparts. Even within the church, mainline denominations have dwindled in part because their members are dying off without faithful children to replace them. Conservative churches have grown or at least held their own because their parishioners have had babies and kept more of those babies in the fold. I just realized I forgot uh, Hannah. You can add her on like Friday and Monday to make up for my error there. So, sorry about that. Luke and Tricia. Nonetheless, the meek will inherit the earth, especially those humble enough to raise children. In the end, having children is not merely an act of dogged obedience or even simply an act of faith. It's an act of transcendence. When I tell my child as he heads out the door, remember, you are a de young. I am not only exhorting him to, keep, <clears throat> to act in keeping with our values, I'm sending our family name out into the world, into places where I cannot be in a future too distant for me to reach. That's part of what it looks like to have arrows in your hand and you shoot them out and say, this is the way that God can continue to do his powerful work in the world by me raising children who love God, who will raise children who love God, who will raise children who love God. So again, if you're in that stage of life where you can consider marriage or you can consider having children, I urge you to do both of those things. And if you are at the point of life where you can't, or the Lord hasn't given you that gift, or anything else, again, there are children you can invest in. You can pray for families to grow in grace together. You can help fight the evils of abortion and child abuse and child abandonment and child slavery. You can help defend the the rights of the defenseless, as we often talk about here. 
So we've seen in Psalm 127 that the Lord is the one who blesses your efforts. So give him thanks that when you go to work, you can feel productive because the Lord blesses your efforts. And in Psalm 128, we see that the Lord blesses those who walk in his ways. That's the theme of Psalm 128. That's what Solomon, it appears, was writing to the people of God. The Lord blesses those who walk in his ways. He blesses those who fear him. It says in verse 1, and maybe you would ask just briefly, how do I grow in the fear of the Lord, which is just taking God seriously? How do I learn to walk in his ways? The second line of verse 1, I would urge you to grow simply in the knowledge of God. The more you know God, the more you want to love and honor and revere him. So besides reading the Bible a lot, you could uh, get a good hymnal. And I can send you recommendations of which ones I would encourage you to read just to have page after page of deep theology written over the last 1,500 years or so that just helps you stir up beautiful thoughts of God, that evokes beautiful images of God. You could also read a book called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves about the fear of God. Uh, You could read this one by J.I. Packer, Knowing God, probably the best book I've read in quite a while. Uh, It's been really wonderful to to read through that. And it's a a, a 50-year-old classic about the knowledge of God. Uh, you could, if you're a, one of our brothers, you can join us on Tuesday night for our men's book study. That'll help you know God through knowing his word better. I'd also urge you, as you think about how can I grow in the fear of God, I've thought about this before, I've tried to fear God and I don't know how to do it. Let me be super practical. I'll just urge you to isolate different aspects of your life. So just like if you're trying to work out, you're probably not going to work out every muscle group in your body on a single day. You're probably going to work in different sections of your body at different points. If you're trying to renovate your house, you're probably not going to do the kitchen and the bathroom and the basement all at one time. Like That sounds like a nightmare if you're going to try and live in that house. If you're trying to do the whole thing at once, that's fine if you're not living there. But I'm just saying it's going to be chaotic. It's going to feel pointless. You're going to feel like you're shooting at you know a thousand birds instead of just focusing on one. And it's going to be really frustrating and discouraging. So instead, as you think about how can I walk with God better, isolate a particular area of your life. Think about things like, how are you taking care of your body? Are you honoring the Lord with how you're taking care of your body? How am I doing in my relationships? How am I doing in serving my church in various areas of self-discipline? And so on. And as you learn to walk in God's ways, it's a long-term process. It's a lifelong process. No one here is going to tell you, well, I kind of hit like my peak of sanctification like five years ago, so I'm just going to coast to the end. We're all fighting sin till the day we die. So keep fighting till the day you die. It's not an overnight quick fix. And if you need help, there's no shame in getting help to walk with God. That's why you go to church, is to acknowledge, I'm a sinner. I'm so bad I needed Jesus to die for me. That's how bad I am. And I need help keep fighting my sin. So I'm going to join with other brothers or sisters to do that. So the Lord blesses those who fear him. But he doesn't just bless you. One of the ways he blesses you is by blessing your work and your family. That's what verse 2 teaches us. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. It means you actually get to enjoy the outcome of your work. And then you have a, a great wife, or if you're a wife, you have a great husband. And if you have children, they're like these beautiful pictures of growth that just keep on prospering and giving more beauty to the world. And this sentence, that you will eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, that sounds kind of weird. 
So when I was just taking notes, this was probably Monday or so this past week, the first question I wrote about this verse was, why is this important? That we'll enjoy the work of our hands. Like, for some people, we don't care. We just want to go to our jobs and clock in and clock out and just move on with life. Why is it important that we would enjoy the fruit of the labor of your hands? What the psalmist is doing here is making me look good from when I preached Deuteronomy last year. What I mean by that is, when I preached Deuteronomy last year, I said that Deuteronomy was the hinge on which the whole rest of the Old Testament hung. So, Genesis through Numbers is summarized in Deuteronomy, and then the rest of the Old Testament is spelled out by Deuteronomy, or it spells out the implications of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 28, let me just read this phrase for you and see. So I want you to look at at verse 2 here. Psalm 128, verse 2. And listen to these words from Deuteronomy 28, which is the covenant curses. So if you don't obey what God said he's going to, what God has called you to do, here's what God has said he's going to do. Verse 30. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes instead of you doing it yourself to eat the meat, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. And we could go on and on. All I'm saying is the psalmist is saying, oh yeah, just like God said, if you walk in his ways, you get to eat the food that you worked to plant and to harvest. And if you don't obey God, it's going to be miserable because other people are going to take the blessings that were intended for you. So it's spelling out the covenant curses from Deuteronomy 28. All this is saying is that Deuteronomy is a super important book of the Old Testament. Just thought I'd throw that in there again nine months later. But we are not under the Old Covenant. There isn't this apple-to-apple, like one-to-one, you sinned in this way, so now God's going to drop judgment on your car. You know, if, I, if you drive through a hailstorm, this was clearly God's judgment for being in the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever. That's not how we live under the new covenant. Jesus died. Jesus initiated, in doing so, the new covenant. If you've heard anything from Clayton preaching the book of Hebrews, it's that the old covenant is done, and the new covenant has been inaugurated, and so we don't live under this, like, tit-for-tat, you disobeyed, so now the judgment's going to fall on your heads and burning coals. We, as God's people, living under the new covenant, expect maybe some visible blessings in this life, but particularly in the next life. And this is where the health and wealth prosperity gospel gets it so wrong, is they're expecting all these future promises that God promises to his people to be front-loaded to right now. So you have this like, you know, front-end loader coming and dumping all the blessings into your life for you to enjoy all the days of your life. And that's why people turn away from the faith when they get cancer or their spouse gets cancer or their child dies of you know, childhood leukemia. Because what happened to those blessings? I thought God was a God who kept his promises and here he's actually brought curses to me. No, that's because you're reading the Bible wrongly, <laughs> in other words. So give thanks for the visible, tangible fruit in your life. Maybe that is a wonderful family that he describes, where it sounds like you have a beautiful time at, at meals, sitting, sitting there together in verse 3. That's wonderful. Praise God if that's your experience. But realize that much of your labor won't result in immediate results. And I think of this every single Sunday when I preach to you. I love preaching to you. 
I love the Lord who calls us to minister. But I also realize that spiritual growth isn't like super visible. I can't see a, you know, a, a graph, a chart like Terry could put together for us of what our church looks like spiritually speaking. He can't do that part. <laughs> he can do the like, other kinds of charts. But I can't look at that kind of a chart because it's kind of like when I serve my kids mac and cheese, I don't expect them to grow an inch. I sustain them for another day. Praise God. They are still all alive. But when I preach, I just have to throw the seeds in the ground and go to bed, like Jesus says in the parable, and trust that overnight there's going to be something happening underground that I may never see. And I'm okay with that. Which is why we throw thousands of dollars from the world's perspective to the wind. From our perspective, we're throwing it to the Lord and watching Him blow it in every different direction around the world. Which is amazing. So when we look at, okay, so why isn't our church growing? No idea! That's my answer. Is our church being fruitful? Absolutely! Because you're here and because we're giving thousands of mission dollars to other churches and to other missionaries who are doing their work in other places. So we can't see that visible, tangible fruit now. We can enjoy the blessing of knowing that God is working behind the scenes. Sometimes God blesses us in ways that don't make sense to us, and sometimes we won't understand until we're on the other side of the river, as John Bunyan would say in Pilgrim's Progress, that God has been working the whole time. So don't assume that if you're married or have children or have a good job, that's proof that you've done it right, like you've pleased God. And if you don't have those things, that's proof that you haven't pleased God. Don't believe that if you get married or have children, then you will be truly satisfied. Marriage is a wonderful gift and super hard work. Parenting is a wonderful gift and super hard work. Employment is a wonderful gift, and depending on the job, super hard work. I think every job has its own hard parts. But what I would say is all those gifts, all those gifts, marriage, parenting, working, all those gifts make terrible gods. They make false promises to you. They will not satisfy you. Trust in the Lord to give you joy and blessing, not those gifts that God gives us. They are not your gods. They are simply gifts from God. Verses 5 and 6 here at the very end of Psalm 128 simply are prayers to the Lord. You could add the word may before each line here if it's not already there. So may the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. So in other words, may your people be safe. May God be giving you that visible blessing like he promised in Deuteronomy 28. And may you see your children's children, which means may you have a long life. My dad died at 55, didn't see a single one of his grandkids. But his gospel legacy is continuing through all of his children who have kids, raising their kids for the Lord. And then may peace be upon Israel. Essentially, this is just a way of saying may God take care of his people. May he keep his promises. And you just pray these things for each other and pray Uh, for one another. I told you earlier about Nicholas Alchemade, and you would think that coming away alive after falling three miles out of the sky would be enough. But uh, he actually had multiple other experiences later in life. One time getting covered by acid, nearly dying. One time breathing in poisonous gas for like 15 seconds. Other people would have died. Somehow he was still alive. Another time, this pole fell on him, 
Most people would have died. Instead, he survived. Eventually, he decided, I'm going to sell furniture. And then he died in his bed with his family surrounding him in 1987. When you think about his life, that had to be like the happiest ending you could have possibly imagined. Like, put a bow on this thing. I died in my bed with my wife and my children, and they loved me. What a wonderful life, even though I nearly died four times. Was he blessed by God? Maybe. I mean, it'd be awesome. It would be awesome if he was a Christian. Like, I want to ask him what he was thinking while he was falling through the sky for three miles. So was he blessed by God? Yes. God blesses all in some ways. But he blesses some in all ways. And if you are in Christ, you have been blessed in every way. So enjoy the blessings of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we look forward to the day when we from the dust will rise to reign. When we will no longer be exiles and pilgrims walking through the earth, waiting to cross the river. We will no longer deal with corruption in our bodies and in our world. We will no longer suffer loss. Instead, you will have kept all of your promises and you will have made all things new. And so we look forward to the day when we will rise to shine like stars in a new creation. And all will be well and we will enjoy and display your glory forever. And may you make us people who trust in you, who fear you, who walk in all your ways, and who enjoy the blessings you have given us. Amen. Let's stand and close and sing together.